Well, let's turn again to uh, the letter to the Hebrews. I want to draw your attention to the last part of verse 3. Hebrews chapter 1 and uh, verse 3, the last sentence there. When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. It's one of the great verses of the Bible that you ought to know and think about and love. And it's very important then that when there's a crucial central truth like this, the very heart of revealed religion, that, that you understand it and are moved by it to worship and to doxology. Now then, um, firstly, let's consider who is this one that he's talking about, who is the he that he mentions here. And uh, you can see the context. Uh, he's the one through whom God has made his final words spoken to us. God speaks through creation. He speaks through the moon and the stars. He shows us the glory of outer space, the massiveness. He speaks to us through the atom that uh, he made. Uh, he speaks through your conscience. He commends you when you do what's right. And he rebukes you then when you do what's wrong. It's God's monitor, God's inner voice that speaks to you. And then God has a special revelation. He's spoken through Moses and the prophets. Moses wrote the first five books of the uh, Old Testament. And there we learn about creation and we learn what went wrong, how man has rebelled against God and brought sin and death into the world and so on. We read about the Ten Commandments and God the great deliverer. Um, but now God finally has come into this world. He's spoken unto us by his Son. God has a Son. And the Son is uh, equal in power and glory to the Father. You know, when uh, two fathers meet in the maternity ward and they look through a big glass uh, window at the cribs that are there and uh, uh, they're looking at their newborn sons. One doesn't turn to the other and says, my son, he's 97% uh, human. And the other man doesn't look back and say, my son is 98% human. Of course that never happens. They are 100% human, just as they are 100% human. God has a son, and he is 100% divine, just as his father is 100% divine. And that God who spoke through the prophets has now spoken to us by his son, Jesus Christ. He spoke when he was set, his disciples came unto him, and he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. William Shakespeare never said anything as wonderful 
as the speaking Lord Jesus Christ. No one ever made the claims that he made. I and my Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen God, he said. He is God manifestly seen and heard. Heaven's beloved one has come into this world and has shown us what God is like. So we can say this one, he, he is the speaking God. Or we can say he is the one who made the universe. Verse 2, by whom he also made the worlds, he says. John's Gospel begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made, not the Milky Way, that one galaxy amongst a billion. Not one rogue molecule can claim I wasn't made by God, I made myself. God made everything. He made all things visible and invisible. There's this fascination with origins. Where did the world come from? Books are appearing all the time. I read a review in the Times yesterday of a new book which will tell us now how 500 billion years ago things began. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That one who was weary and sat at the side of a well in Sukkah, in Samaria, and asked a woman if she could get him a, a bowl of water to drink. He made the universe. He made you. In him we live and move and have our being. He made the forests whence there sprung the tree on which his body hung. He died upon a cross of wood, yet made the hill on which it stood. The vastness of space. He made it all. There's nothing malicious in the universe. We send our children off to Liverpool University and uh, they study and there are no booby traps. Ah, there can be booby traps that lecturers will put in to disturb us. But in the stuff itself of God's creation, the, all that science reveals, there's nothing anti-Christ in what God has made. We can face it fearlessly. Uh, who is Einstein? Just the ruins of an Adam, that's all. Uh, the most sophisticated modern lab, it's the rubbish of paradise. Christ made everything, Christ is relevant to everything. He's relevant to the outdoors, he put Adam in a garden. He's relevant to the indoors, he put then the second Adam in a workshop. He is the one being spoken of here, he is the one who purged our sins, and then we, in answer to that question, who is he? We're told then in the next verse, he's the brightness of his glory. The brightness. He's not just a, um, a little candle and the brightness of the sun. He is the brightness of the sun. He's the 
If you've seen him, you hide your eyes. Paul saw him on the uh, road to Damascus, and he's blinded at the, at the vision. The angels cover their eyes when they see him because of the brightness of his glory. He's the express image of his person. That's who he is. He, he is the transcript. You remember when um, they brought finally the new photocopier into the office the two engineers came in and they wheeled this thing and they set it up and they unscrewed it and plugged it in and then he got out a piece of paper and he closed and he pressed the button and whew, next to no time, out came the copy and then he said, here we are, here's the transcript and now then. Now, which is which? Can you tell the difference? This is our machine, you see, it just is so accurate. Jesus Christ is the transcript, the express image of Almighty God. This is the one we're being talked of, who by himself purged our sins and is sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He's not a fake. He's not a forgery. There's not a flaw in him. He is as much God as the Father is God. God is love, and I never see the love of God more wonderfully expressed when he is there on the cross loving me and dying for me and praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's the heart of God. There was no more God-like thing that Jesus ever did when he laid down his life for us on the cross. He is the one that this verse is talking about then, the speaking Lord, the brightness of God's glory, the express image of his person. So what did he do? He purged our sins. Let's consider that now. He came into the closest contact with these people. It was possible. He was made in the likeness of sinful flesh. This people whose forefathers God had spoken to, and, and he lived among them. He shared a bedroom with his half-brothers. He shared a meal table with his half-sisters and his mother and Joseph. And he came into contact with their sins. If he brushed against them, if he breathed their atmosphere of a fallen, groaning world, Without himself being contaminated, he came into contact with them. They failed to love God with all their heart, like you. They failed to love their neighbors as themselves, like you. They had other gods before him. They made idols. They took his name in vain. They were greedy and lustful and slipped their hand in the till when no one was looking and coveted what other people had. They had sins, and sin defiles us. Sin makes us dirty, and we need more than a little washing. We need more than a little sprinkling. Um, I'd go to church with mom on a Sunday night, and we'd sit next to one another, and she'd give me a 
Heinz tomato soup for tea. And I had a ring around my mouth, so she said, give me your hanky. And she said, spit on it. And I spit on it, and then she cleaned me up. She wasn't going to sit next to someone with soup on his face. A little cleaning. Our sins need more than a little cleaning. Our sins need purging, a thorough cleansing, a washing. There was a man, he knocked on, no, he rang the bell in Aberystwyth, in the mansion. I hadn't seen him before. I might have seen him around town. And uh, he said, you're the minister. I said, will you baptize me? I said, come in. And he told me his story then, how he'd gone to Canada to live, and he lived with a woman, and she'd become pregnant. And without telling him, she'd had an abortion. And then she ended the relationship and walked out on him, and he felt defiled. He felt dirty, guilty, and nothing was helping. He thought, oh, if I could be baptized. So I spoke to him. I was so glad he'd come to me. And uh, I said, it's an outward sign of an inward cleansing. You're baptized to display that you've been washed. You've been cleansed through what Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has done. There's been a laundry opened up on Mount Calvary. And from... Golgotha laundry then, people who have gone there and have uh, submitted to the cleansing, purging of Jesus Christ, though their sins are like scarlet, they are whiter than so. No indelible sin when it meets the blood of Jesus Christ, when it comes to the foot of the cross where he has done. Our sins, he says, ours, uh, ours. Uh, Jesus stands in solidarity with us in our sinful acknowledgement. We gather here, we're not very smart people, not very beautiful people, not very wealthy people in Liverpool, are we? We're very ordinary Liverpudlians who, who are here today, and we're here because we, we are sinners who need cleansing from our sin. And uh, who is writing? To whom is this letter being written? It's be, is it being written to the Sanhedrin? Is it being written to Caesar and the Senate in Rome? Is it a promiscuous letter to the world? Of course, it's not. It's, it's written to Hebrew Christians. It's written to them. A certain constituency, a certain definitive and particular and limited constituency. It isn't written to the Agora, to the Piazza, to the Acropolis. It's not a public letter. It's a letter to a church. It's a letter to the followers of Jesus Christ, those who believe in their hearts and confess with their lips that Jesus Christ is their God and their Saviour. <laughs> the ones 
to whom he writes uh, elsewhere, the apostle, and he says, uh, Christ died for our sins, he, me too, Paul says, according to the scriptures. Me with you, our only hope, the Lamb of God. He says, uh, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, he tells the Ephesians. And from his own experience, he says, he loved me. He gave himself for me. It's so particular, it's so definitive. Not to all those who died in Noah's flood, but to those who can say, our sins, my sins need purging. I need cleansing. Whose total answer to the problem of our guilt in the eyes of a holy God is, he purged my sins. Now you see the, the consequences of that. The effect of that for us all. That my sins now are as though they never were. They're gone. They're buried. They're as far from me as the east is from the west. It's a magnificent, it's an incredible concept that our sins do not control or modify our relationship with God this morning. It is as if they were not there. There is no defilement. It has all been removed. They do not exist any longer. He's taken our past sin. He's taken our present sin. He's taken our future sin. And he's put it away. He's provided purification for it all. So we are whiter than snow. I'm not sure that my conscience believes this this morning. I'm not sure that there isn't some ego in me that wants to cling in self-pity to some remnants of guilt and harp on about it so that I can feel justified in feeling sorry for myself. But if I let this truth be the only truth about the way things are now between me and the creator of the universe, the holy God, that there is no barrier whatsoever, that there is no impediment. It is all forgiven. It is all forgotten. It is all blotted out. It may be that sometimes you use that vague belief that uh, one day you must enter purgatory. You've come from a Catholic background. You know what Catholics believe. And once you were told about this and, and you believed it, that you must, after your death, go to purgatory. And there, depending on how bad you've been and how many uh, masses are, are paid for, for um, many years, finally uh, an, enough is done by men in religious costumes, repeating religious formula, 
to deliver you from purgatory, to deliver you from the remnants of sin and guilt that you've taken with you after death. And that belief that some of you still have at the back of your minds, it justifies a little less commitment. A little less longing to be pure and holy and to please God in everything. A little less discipleship because, well, I've got to pay for it anyway. It's so sweet. It's so irresistible. It's so beautiful. Not like other men's sins, my sins. And I've got to go to purgatory anyway. I am saying to you, you hear me now? It is all forgiven. He has purged all our sins. He's borne it all. Every speck and spot and every such thing. There's absolutely nothing left. Do you believe it? The single determinant in your relationship with God this morning is what Jesus Christ did on that cross and how God responded to Christ. Nothing else matters. Nothing else is relevant. There are only two factors in the equation. What Christ did and how God responded. And the way you feel this morning and the way you struggle and what you achieve and what you fail to achieve, that is irrelevant. The one thing that is relevant is the, the cross work of Jesus Christ on Golgotha. And I do not believe for a moment that the heart that knows that is going to take advantage of it and go on to live a life without law. Because that cross, that grace of God, that love of God in Jesus Christ won't let you. I believe on the contrary that uh, purgatory encourages temptation and fall. I believe that a bad conscience and a feeling that God has still something against you, that you feel, well, I've got to pay for it. I'll pay for it one day. And that develops an unconscious grudge against God that somehow justifies us in being imperfect and permits a, a relapse here a swear word there, a dirty weekend here. I want to know in the depth of my own heart that the Lord Jesus Christ made a good and decent and proper job of the work that God gave him to do before the foundation of the world, that he would come and he would love all that the Father had given him and he would purge their guilt their shame, the defilement, that he would deal with it all. He's God the Son.
He's the speaking God. He's the brightness of God's glory, the express image of his person. And there came a time when he focused on the one thing that still was needed to be done. He set his face steadfastly to Jerusalem and a vocation that was his before the world began. <coughs> he was walking with destiny and his goal was Golgotha, to deal with our sin the way it corrupts us and spoils us and breaks your heart and breaks up marriages and families and causes world wars and unspeakable cruelties. And he came to deal with that the way God hates it and the gulf that there is between him and all the inhabitants of heaven, and we groaning men and women in this world. He came, he came, the one who raised the dead, he came, the one who preached the parable of the, the prodigal son, the one who preached the great upper room discourse, no man ever spoke like him, he came, Jehovah Jesus came, and there was one more thing he had to do before he could say, it is finished. Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He has to purge our sins. He has to take the defilement that corrupts our guilt. That spoils the best things. That spoils our best praying, our best preaching, our best love for those who love me and love you so much. And we fail, and we hurt. And he comes to deal with that, that guilt and that shame. And he's done it. He has de-sinned us so that we are without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, as sinless as God himself. That's our status. So you see the consequences of what I'm saying. I'm saying that the dying of Jesus is purgatory. That Golgotha is the only purgatory in this world or the world to come. No need of another purging. After what God the Son has done in his love, because there's absolutely nothing left now to perch. Uh, there's no force, there's no special power in that place of darkness that can deal with leftover sin and guilt, my friends. When we see him, we will be like him. We will see him as he is, and he is able to keep us from falling, and he would present us faultless before his presence with exceeding joy. He didn't do half a job on Calvary. He didn't do 90% of a job on Calvary and left us to do all the rest. He by himself purged our sin. If we are joined to Jesus Christ by faith, if we are trusting in him, 
then he has taken responsibility for all of our sin, our hypocrisy, our meanness, the things that make us groan with regret. He's dealt with it all. And you see what our text says, that he did it by himself. He by himself purged us and by himself. What was he doing? Well, he was offering himself without spot to God. He wasn't offering his sufferings only. He wasn't offering his blood only. He wasn't offering his obedience. wasn't offering his human nature. He was offering himself. The spotless Lamb of God. To spotty Liverpudlian sinners he was offering himself. That their spots may be all cleared away. He's the ransom price paid. He is the propitiation of the holy anathema of God of, against all that contradicts God's nature. He's the great satisfaction rendered to God. He's the price of our liberation. Nothing left undone for anyone else to do. He made it a purging for our sins. He did it not by enabling you to do something. He did it not by inspiring you to choose, by encouraging you to repent, by challenging you to discipleship, by exhorting you to faith, by commanding you to live a holy life, by pleading with you to show more compassion, by urging you to love your neighbor as yourself. Because if my standing before God depends today on my repentance and my faith, and my compassion, and my holy living, then before God I have no hope. But he did something. He did it all by himself. After his temptations, angels came and ministered to him. At his baptism, the voice of God assured him how much his father loved him. At his transfiguration, God spoke and said, You listen now, hear my son. But when he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There was, there was no voice. There was no angel to mop his brow. He was by himself, no friend, no family. They'd all forsaken him and fled. You were no help to Jesus, were you? I was no help to him. On Golgotha, he was by himself. He was all alone. And he perched. He did. He did it. Only him. By himself. He did it. Our brave young saviour. What could be more glorious? What could be more liberating than this? There's a real an eternal, as long as God himself endures, this purging will endure. He's accomplished it. And he did it by himself. And then we are told what happened next. He sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. 
He is a sitting saviour. Now, what do we do with that? Well, it means he finished, he finished the work. He accomplished the work that he came to do. Dad comes home, parks the car, comes in, flops down. Supper's almost ready. You sit there now and soon he's asleep. He's got the paper, but he's sleeping because he's worked. And the work is over and he's home in his armchair and he's sitting, isn't he? So God looked at the original creation. Genesis 1. It's good. First day, second day, it was good. Looked at it all, he said. Very good, he said. Today, God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit look at the whole life, the righteousness and the dying of Jesus Christ. And they are completely and absolutely satisfied with what Jesus has done. There's no more glorious reality in all the world than that. That Jesus Christ is completely pleased with his own work. He looks at his own work. And he says, very good. And God looks at the work that Jesus Christ has done. And he says, very good. And the Holy Spirit looks at the work that Jesus Christ has done. Very good, they say. And he, the Father rests. And the Spirit rests. And the Son rests. The angels in glory, they, they, they can't believe their eyes. They are filled with wonder and love and praise. And the Father and the Son and the Spirit are filled with wonder at the achievement of the Lord Christ. And the terrible thing is that everybody's happy with it, except you. That you, but yeah, yes, but you're, you're thinking, yes, but um, I want to make my contribution. That's the terrible thing. As some of you are thinking, you want to give a little bit of yourself. You want to give a little bit of Christian experience. You want to uh, give a, a few marks of grace, um, a little growth, a little progress, a little suffering, a little witnessing that you have done. And, and then you'll come to God bringing these things with you. Then it will be absolutely perfect when you've made your contribution too. You are not sitting down. You are not resting only, always, exclusively, eternally in the work of Jesus Christ. But that's what God the Son did. He purged our sins and he sat down. And the Father rests in the achievements of Christ.
and the Spirit of God is totally content with what the Lord Jesus has done. And the angels in heaven, that's the theme of their praise, that worthy is the Lamb of God to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And the spirits of just men, if they had a crown, if they had a medal, if they had an award, if they had a knighthood or whatever, they cast it before him. Because he is all in all. I remember interviewing a Dutch girl for membership in the church and asking her the $64,000 question. When you stand before God and God says to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What answer will you give? She looked back shocked at me. She said, because of Jesus. Is, is that your hope? Jesus only? Jesus exclusively? He is the way. He is the door. He is your righteousness. He made a purging for our sins. There's nothing more wonderful than, than this. That's why Paul was determined not, not, not to preach anything than Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's why the Bible is such a magnificent book. That's why again and again our hymns have reflected the Bible. Our praying has reflected the Bible. Talking to the children. Recounting a testimony here. Preaching the... It's the word. It's the word. And you say to any visiting preacher that comes, you preach the word to us. Feed me now and evermore, because you live by the words that have proceeded from the mouth of God through the prophets and the apostles. So now, what do I want you to do? I don't want you to do anything. I want you to do nothing. I want you to do absolutely nothing. I don't want you to come out of the seats and kneel here at the, at the front. I don't want you to be baptized. I don't want you to join the church. I don't want you to make any resolutions that from now on you're going to live a better life, you're going to be more attentive in the services and you're, you're going to stop your bad habits. I don't want you to think of what you're going to do. I want you to sit. I don't want you to make plans. I don't want you to decide. I want you to say, nothing in my hands I bring. Nothing. Absolutely nothing means nothing. Mary is commended because she sits at Jesus' feet and she looks at him 
and learns from him. In the Old Testament, the people of God whinged and complained and wanted to go back to slavery in Egypt. And God disciplined them. He sent snakes. So you went into bed and there was a snake in the bed. You went to pick up manna and there was a snake hissing at you. You went outside the tent in the night and you put your foot on a snake. And it bit you and you died in pain. Snakes everywhere. Such a plague. And the people cried to, to God for mercy. And you remember what God said. All right, set up a great pole, high pole, and make a, a bronze, a brazen image of, of a serpent high there. Set it up so they can see it everywhere in the camp, for a mile around, they can see it there. As the sun shines on it, they can see it. And then what were they to do? Were they to walk on their knees up to it and seven times around it? Were they to kiss the pole on which it stood? They were to look. Look. Set their eyes on the brazen serpent. Look. Look and live, my brother, live. Look to Jesus Christ and live. Look at him. Look unto me, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is nothing else. Nothing in my hands I bring. I look to that cross where he died, to his great eternal achievement for sinners. He is absolutely satisfied with that and he sits down. And the question is, are you satisfied? Are you totally satisfied with what Jesus Christ has done? Are you absolutely satisfied with what Jesus Christ has done? When you feel your guilt, when the fiery darts remind you of the people you've hurt and you wonder where she is now, You say, bah, but he purged that sin. He purged every sin. He has dealt with my sins. I can run into his presence. I can say, Abba, Father. I can look forward to being with him when I die. Is that your whole answer to a guilty conscience? But Christ has purged my sins. If that is from your heart, your answer this morning, then you are a Christian. I'm not a, a very smart Christian. I'm not a very good Christian, a poor Christian. But Christ has done very special things for you. He's purged away your sin. It is settled. It's settled. You left it all with Jesus long ago.
A man is drowning and the lifeguard goes out and he swims alongside him and he says, now don't struggle. He doesn't say to him, now there's the shore and you've got to swim that way. The man is drowning. He says, leave it to me. All right? Don't pull me down. Just rest in me. Let me save you. And I'm hemming you in to Christ, to Christ only. Let Jesus Christ save you this morning. You're not going to save yourself. Not the labor of your hands can fulfill the Lord's demands. If your tears forever flowed, imagine a hundred years of weeping, a thousand years, ten thousand years of crying for your sins could not purge them away. Thou must save, and thou alone. I want you to sit. I don't want you to bat an island. I want you to purge this word do from your minds. I never want you to think in terms of your works, what you do. Till to Jesus' work you cling by a simple faith. Doing is a deadly thing. Doing ends in death. You sit and you consider what the Son of God has done. You be satisfied with what Jesus Christ has done. Let your conscience be satisfied with what Jesus Christ has done. Let your intellect be satisfied with what Jesus Christ has done. Let your past be satisfied with what Jesus Christ has done. Don't move a muscle. No brain waves now. Send them in the depths of the sea. Settle on this. I, the chief of sinners, am. But Jesus died for me. The world is full of religions. Lots of religions in Liverpool. And all the religions say, do, do, do this, do that. Do meditate, do praise, do fast. Jesus Christ is saying, sit. Look to what he has done. Be satisfied with that. That is salvation. That is salvation. That's Christianity. That is life. That is grace. Look and live, my brother. Neither is there salvation in any other. There is none other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. Look unto me all the ends of the earth and be saved. There's life for that look. Let the wicked forsake his ways and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Don't, don't be beating yourself up with your thoughts. Look, look to him. Look to Jesus. The dying thief, 
He couldn't move his hands, couldn't move his legs. He wasn't going to turn over a new leaf and live a new life. All he could say was, don't forget me. When you deal with the affairs of the Milky Way and hear a million people praying, don't forget me. He has by himself purged our sins and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then when you've looked, ah, be steadfast and be unmovable and be always abounding in the work of the Lord because it's, it's not in vain. Your testimony here in Belvedere Road, it's not in vain. Be steadfast and unmovable and abound in that work. But now you, you, you come to him and look to him. You look to him just as you are. It's that movement of your heart. It's your awareness. I can't save myself. But I can look at a saviour. A cat may look at a queen. A sinner may look at a saviour. Our Heavenly Father, bless your word. Give it saving lucidity and clarity, illumination, power, regenerating power that people may see that they've been just looking at themselves and think, I'm not a very good person. I'm not a very good Christian. Ah, oh, help them to look this morning, to look and live this morning, to look at Jesus Christ and his great purging work and be overwhelmed at the great accomplishment of Golgotha. Ah, oh, grant that saving assurance. Please, in your mercy, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.